Micah, I met her in sixth grade when we were doing online school. We started getting close and then we got each other's numbers and we would like text throughout the summer. We weren't really best friends, but we just like talked a lot. In seventh grade, we had classes together and I started to get close with her twin, Harper. We noticed that we had a lot in common, one being like our faith. I asked them like, do you guys go to church or anything? And then they were like, we did, but we don't really have a church home right now. When I invited them to mix, it was, I didn't know if it would be like if they would want to go or not because they had just started coming to church with me. Um, but they were thrilled that I invited them. And then we like immediately started thinking about how fun it would be together. And they really wanted to take a next step in their faith. So I think Mix was the right option for that. Mix is a four day um, retreat in the summer at a college campus. You really get to bond with your friends because you get to stay in the dorms and you feel like a college kid for like a week and it's really fun. <laughs> They've shown interest in continuing to be a part of Venture Students. Yeah, thank you Ainsley for sharing your story. Yeah, show her some love. You know, this whole one life thing, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, we tend to overcomplicate this. It's just investing and inviting folks to be a part of the Jesus thing that he's doing in your life. Thank you. Our, some of our students are really leading uh, in this area. Thank you, Ainsley, for sharing that story. All right. I've got some good news. I've got some good news, and I've got some not-so-great news. What do you want to hear first? Okay, good news. All right, let's start with the good news. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we had good news, right? We had a... Uh, a spiritual explorers panel. If you were here that week, it was, it was awesome. We had five folks up on the stage, and uh, Evan interviewed them and asked great questions. They gave honest answers. If you've ever wondered, oh my goodness, what do people who are, well, they've not yet crossed the line of faith, people who maybe are living far from God, they don't know our God yet. What do they think about us? What do they think about the church? What do they think about Jesus? Well, you should go back. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch it that week. It's so helpful for us to, uh, well, even to exercise our active listening skills. We're going to talk about that more next week. That was good news. That was such a good thing that we got to be a part of. It reminded me as I watched it that uh, people aren't projects, right? Evangelism, it's simply one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. Hey, there's food over here. Let's go eat together. That's good news. Last week. Last week was also good news. If you missed last week, you missed a treat. You need to go back and check it out online as well. Gary Poole, a nationally recognized expert on personal evangelism, was here to share his story, to do some inspiration and some coaching, kind of a big picture level thing. It was, it, it was so cool. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about when I say Jay. He told a story, beginning of his message and in the end of his message, about a friend in his life that he's invested in over the years. His name is Jay. You guys, I got to meet Jay. Let me show you a picture. I snapped a photo last Sunday night. Jay, Gary, interviewed Jay with our students. Our students. They got to hear Gary talk about personal evangelism at Momentum last Sunday night, and, and Jay was here, and not just to be a part of that storytelling, but then literally to answer questions. Our, our students hit them with some great questions, and it was a great Q&A time and such a rich time of discovery on what this one life thing is all about. It reminded me, as I was listening to Jay tell his story last Sunday night, there's a passage of Scripture in Psalm 90. 
This is one that you ought to memorize. Psalm 90, verse 12 says this. Teach us to number our days. This life has a birth date and a death date. It has a born-on date and an expiration date. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Are we doing the things that are really important? You keep hearing me say, and you heard the other speakers say over the last few weeks, that you have one life to invest. One life. Here's the question. Who is the one life that you're investing in? And here's the thing. We're unapologetically calling each of us toward that end. By the end of this seven-week series, you ought to be able to name your one life. Who is that one life that you're investing in? And actually, we're going to have a call to action at the end of this where you kind of declare that and have a prayerful moment with God that I'm doubling down on this. I'm serious about this. I, want to, I have one life to invest, and I want to invest it well for others, for you, God. Good news, good news, not so great news. This isn't about you. This is really kind of about me. The not so great news for me is I, I have to follow those two weekends. So I've been thinking about this week. I'm excited about this message. God's put some great things on my heart that I hope are encouraging and helpful for you uh, as I share them. But I want to continue in this good news theme here real quick. I see several Colts clothes here today for good reason. I feel like the mood in our city has elevated over the last seven days. You guys, I was a bit of a pessimist last Sunday. I was not a true believer. Oh my goodness, we beat the Kansas City Chiefs. What a big deal with the Colts last Sunday. We're gearing up for the Titans uh, this afternoon, and I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged about that, about what's going to happen there. Some of you may, may not know this, that one of my boys is a, well, he's a diehard Colts fan. How could he help it? He grew up in this area, in the Peyton Manning era. I mean, he, he come on, it was, he was kind of destined that this is going to be the team that he roots for. He's not just a fan. My son Eric is a fanatic. Some of you are fanatics. Actually, Eric uh, launched a Twitter account. This happens sometimes. High school kids, he was maybe a freshman in high school. Mom and dad took his phone away. I don't remember why, but I'm sure it was for good reason. It was punishment. And he was distraught. He came to us and he said, you guys, I've got to update my Twitter accounts. And I'm doing exactly what you're doing right now. I'm like, well, come on, the five or six guys in your lunch room, they can go two weeks without hearing an update from you. How many followers do you have on this account? Uh, I think about 16,000. Okay, I told I was serving a different church at that point. I told the marketing director this story, and she's like, man, he could like, he can market that. He can like leverage that. He can monetize that account. And this is like maybe a side hustle that you should be encouraging, not discouraging. Well, he's done that. He's a senior in uh, college now. He's got a couple of uh, Twitter accounts now that he feeds. One's called Colts Coverage, and the other I think is called the Blue Stable, and he's got a whole bunch of followers. And I had lunch with Eric last week, and we were talking about this, and we were talking about football. And as always happens when we're talking about football, we talked about pretty boy Tom Brady. That's what we call him in our house. And I like to needle Eric a little bit. I don't know what it is about Colts fans, but uh, we don't like Tom Brady for, for some reason. I know why we don't, but I, I, I get it. But I kind of like to needle him a little bit about Tom Brady. And we're talking about Tom Brady, and this story came up. Perhaps you've heard this story. Here's a picture. Tom Brady with uh, Robert Kraft, owner of the Patriots, at the time star quarterback for the Patriots. At the time, I think between them, they each had five Super Bowl rings. Five, that's a big deal. Now he's got seven. Now, he should have six. He actually has five. 
Here's why. Robert Kraft was visiting at the Kremlin not too awful long ago, several years ago, and he met, you know this guy, Vladimir Putin. He's been all over the news recently, and some kind of a conversation happened. Hey, can I see your ring? Sure, check it out. Well, here's exactly what Robert Kraft said. He said, I took out the ring, and I showed it to Putin, and he put it on his finger, and he goes, quote, I can kill someone with this ring. It's got my attention, right? I put out my hand, and he put it in his pocket, and three KGB guys got around him and just walked out of the room. And as far as we know, that ring is still in the Kremlin. Apparently, the White House, according to Robert Kraft, told him, quote, it would be really best in, in the best interest of U.S.-Soviet relations if you meant to give that ring as a present. <laughs> we don't want World War III breaking out. This is before Crimea and all of the stuff in the news here recently. Here's a picture of Vladimir Putin putting the ring on. Would you agree Vladimir Putin has enormous power and influence? He does. Just ask the folks in Ukraine right now, right? But hear me. You can have more. You can have more. The Putins of this world, they come and they go. If you study world history, there's a whole string of folks like that who just kind of reach and take and exercise power. And influence has a shelf life. But spiritual influence, you have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? What kind of a ripple effect could God create in you and through you Spiritual influence is forever. Spiritual influence can permeate every area of your life, and it can make everything better. It can make your relationships better, your families better, your work environment better, your community, your neighborhood better. Don't believe me? World history. The gospel is birthed, Jesus, first century. He leaves his followers behind, 128 people, or 120 people, uh, upper room. They change the world of their time. Let me list some names to you, the Putins of the day. Have you heard of Claudius, Caligula, Nero? You've probably heard those names, but I bet you can't name three important facts about them. These were the emperors of the Roman Empire during the era your New Testament was birthed. Their influence was temporary. Let me name some other names for you. Peter. James, John, a guy named Saul, we know him as Paul. God used them one life. They have one life to invest. They're investing that life in one life. God used them in some amazing ways. How did they do it? Well, they took Jesus seriously in this one life idea. They had one life to invest. Who's the one life they're going to invest in? There's this moment where Jesus is walking. It's Monday morning. He's walking into the city. Friday is crucifixion day. Monday, he's walking from Bethany across the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree. I don't have time to get into why he does this. I believe it's a moment of cosmic frustration. He's looking at this tree. The text says it was not the season for figs. What's he do? There's no figs on the tree. He curses the tree. That's Monday. 
When evening came, Jesus, I'm in Mark chapter 11. Actually, I'm on page 1015 if you want to follow along in those Bibles that are underneath the seat in front of you. 1015, Mark 11. When evening came, Monday night, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. They went back to Bethany. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, check that out. Look at that thing. Let's keep reading. The fig tree you cursed, it's withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. There's all kinds of things we can do with that text. I don't have time to dive into all the stuff in that text today. But I do want to point out to you some geographical significance between that conversation and what was exactly eight miles to the south of there. I believe that in that moment, when he's talking about mountain-moving faith, I think he's actually pointing that direction. He's saying, you guys can move mountains. Because every little Jewish schoolboy and schoolgirl knew the story at that time of King Herod the Great, the Vladimir Putin of his day. King Herod literally cut off the top of this mountain, moved a mountain to the top of this mountain just to make it higher for his pleasure palace. It's called the Herodium. Turned out it was the place where they buried him secretly. That's where his mausoleum was. Eight miles south of here, I believe Jesus is making a political. I believe he's making an ideological. I believe he's making a vision-casting statement, and he's saying you can be greater than Herod the Great. God can use you with significant influence to move mountains. The kingdom of God is at hand. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? There's an author. His name is Michael Green. He talks about this, what happened then in those days and and, uh, weeks and years to follow. The name of the book is Evangelism in the Early Church, and he says this. I love this. He says, wherever they went, Christians were opposed as antisocial, atheistic. They didn't believe in the gods of the pantheon pantheon like the other uh, Roman folks. And they were depraved. Depraved, what's that mean? Well, they did things like they worshipped. They were accused of cannibalism because they ate the body and they drank the blood of the risen Savior. Cannibalism. They were accused of incest. Why? Because they loved their brothers and their sisters. They were accused of all kinds of things that they didn't even do, things like burning down Rome. Nero, another Vladimir Putin of that day, accused the Christians and persecuted the Christians mercilessly because of their faith. Their message proclaimed a crucified criminal, and nothing could have been less calculated than that to win them converts. The book has other quotes. I I love this one. Check this out. Worse still, this worship of crucified Messiah was distinctly blasphemous. The Old Testament, in that tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Old Testament made it perfectly clear that anybody hanged on a stake was resting under the curse of God. And these Christians, they believed this deeply. Christianity was ridiculous, for it proclaimed that the wisdom of God was exhibited in the cross of Jesus. Perfectly ridiculous. The resurrection came to them as God's vindication of the claims Jesus had made. They saw that he was designated son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And they continued to announce these joyful tidings with tireless zeal and boundless enthusiasm. I love this quote from the book. Check this out. This must, must often have been not formal preaching, 
Not people standing up doing what I'm doing right now, but informal, I love this, chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes. Some of us are in a small group right now where we're chattering with friends about the things that God is revealing to us about one life. In wine shops as they're going out doing their business and buying their groceries. On walks, they can't shut up about this. And around market stalls. They went everywhere. I love this phrase. Gossiping the gospel. You guys, we think about one life. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? Are you walking around gossiping the gospel? The rest of this quote. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. They deeply believed this. Jesus died, was buried, resurrected. The world is different, and we can lean into this power. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread like wildfire. How can we have spiritual influence? How can we have mountain-moving kind of faith? Listen, the last three weeks has been very inspiring as we've shared information about this One Life thing. Now we dig in. For the next several weeks, we get real practical. This is less inspiration now. It's about perspiration. How do we do this thing, this one life thing that God is calling us to? Okay, last week you heard Gary talk about 3D1. And this is the, kind of the outline for the next several weeks in our church. Next week we're going to talk about how do we discover stories. How do we leverage that? The week after that, we're going to talk about how we discern next steps. This week, we're leaning into this whole idea of how do we develop friendships. Angelie's story. Your story. Your story. My story. How do we develop these friendships in our life? As we think about One Life today, we're leaning into this concept of developing friendships. And I've got a big idea that I want to share with you today. If you're taking notes, by the way, is that on page 51? I think of the books that you're tracking along with. If you want to write some notes down there, write this big idea down. This would be something to discuss with your small group this week. Here's the big idea. Friendship with a spiritual explorer, somebody who wants to know more about what you have, friendship takes time, courage, and compassion. We pull this from a specific text of Scripture. If you want to go there with me, I'm in Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea. Notice, he's doing this intentionally. He's going back to the same space, and there's a, a crowd that's developing. It's coming to him, and he was teaching them. Jesus is creating space for friendships, space for relationships. Let's read the next verse. Check this out. Then passing by, he saw Levi. He's also known as Matthew. Levi, Matthew, interchangeable, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. Can I just pause there for a second? What emotional reaction do you have when you see the words toll booth? I'll tell you about mine. Uh, like 10 years ago, I was skirting Chicago. I try to miss Chicago anytime I'm driving that direction. And I was, skirt, I was on one of those toll roads, probably I-80. I stopped and paid my toll. I did. Honest, I, I stopped and paid my toll. I was on a trip. I was leading a study tour in Israel, and so I wasn't even in the country. They sent me a thing, hey, I've got a picture of your license plate. You skipped this toll. It was a $2 fee. Now you owe us, I don't know, 10, 20 bucks. But if you don't pay this like in, oh, like three hours, 
it jumps to like 200 bucks. I was out of the, I didn't even open it until I got back in the country and I opened it and it's like, what? I talked to a lawyer friend of mine and he said, just pay the toll, move on, man. There's nothing you can do about it. They've got you. You can't fight it. There's not even a number you can call to contest this. It's like, but it's not fair. It's not right. I didn't do this. I'm not guilty of this. He said, pay the toll and move on with your life. I'm still upset about that like 10 years later. Can you tell? So we're the first century, folks, the crowd that it assembled. Levi, Matthew, they did not like him. They despised him, actually, because he was somebody that sold out his countrymen. He was working for the occupying army of the day, the Romans. You've got to pay a toll, and if you don't pay it by this certain time, we're going to like triple it and quadruple it. And they didn't like Levi. But Jesus said to him, hey, follow me. And what did Levi do? What did Matthew do? Well, he got up and he followed him. Interesting. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, while he was reclining at the table, in Levi's house, there's a lot that skipped between the verse that we just read and this verse. Like, what are they talking about while they're walking down the road? Well, I hope Jesus gave him what for. Hey, listen, you don't get to triple and quadruple these fees like this. Stop being a jerk. Our countrymen deserve better than this. No, he's hanging out with him in the easy boy in the recliner in his head. He's in Levi's house, not just with him, but many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus, not just Jesus, but his disciples. There's a party that's happening here. You've got Jesus and his followers, Levi and his buddies, and they're hanging out together in Levi's home. The crowds didn't like this guy. I wonder what they thought about what was going on. For there were many people that were following him. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. When the scribes who were called, we should have this in bold, the Pharisees. These scribes were called Pharisees. Jesus did not have kind things to say to the Pharisees. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples. By the way, these people always go that direction. They don't come and talk to you if they're frustrated. They're not talking to you. No, they're going to somebody else talking about you, right? That's what happens here. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I hope his disciples said, I don't know. You probably should go ask him. Well, maybe they did because the next verse says this. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, I hope you read that and you feel just a little bit of a sting in that. Jesus is drawing some boundaries here. And they're important boundaries for Christians to wrestle with. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. One life is pretty important. You have one life to invest Who's the one life? Who's the Matthew, the Levi in your life? Who's the Jay, according to last week's story, in your life that God, God is calling you to invest in? It's so important. Eternity literally t- hangs in the balance. If you're taking notes, write this down. We take the initiative. Why? Because it's our calling. 
Jesus calls us to this. We're not called to be the, the, the frozen chosen, the holy huddle. Jesus went and ate with sinners and tax collectors. I'm still frustrated as I think about that. Jesus calls me to that guy sending me. <laughs> you owe this. I don't know that. We'll pay it anyway. We take the initiative because it's our calling. I pull this from verse 13 and verse 14. Look back at verse 13 again. Jesus went out again by the sea. He was very intentional, and Jesus took the initiative. He went to them. He initiated. They responded. You can't hold back waiting for people to befriend you. One life is all about you taking the initiative. You have to make a move. Look again at verse 14. When passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said, follow me. And then Levi, Matthew, got up and followed him. This is more initiative. Jesus invites him into a spiritual conversation. That phrase, follow me, this implied risk. And invited implies cost. This was an authoritative call, and Levi responds immediately. Have I mentioned he was a tax collector? One of the most hated persons in Israel? Jesus goes after him. You, follow me. So, there are other stories in the New Testament that talk about how touching a leper was shocking and defiling. Maybe connecting with a tax collector would have been the one person above that that you shouldn't do that. By the way, lepers, Jesus looks at compassion with people. You know, the distance in the New Testament you were supposed to stay away from a leper, commanded by the law of the Old Testament. You know how far you're supposed to stay away from them? Uh, four cubits. A cubit is 18 inches long. Do the math. Six feet. Does that sound familiar to you? Like two years ago, we're supposed to stay away from people like six feet. The CDC says, uh, well, actually FEMA has said for years, it's not so much the disaster it's uh, like 18 to 24 months after the disaster, the secondary wave. Folks in our world are hurting right now. There is no better time in our lifetimes for the church of Jesus Christ to lean into the opportunity. God's calling you. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? I hope you can name that person. If not, start praying toward that end. Who is it, God, you're wanting me to invest in right now? I've got one life to invest. Who is it in a world that calls us to be six feet apart, needs me to take a step closer and touch the leper, touch the tax collector? Who is it, God, that you're calling me toward? We take risks. If you're taking notes, write this down. We take risks because we care. Jesus cared. Verses 15 and following, he's reclining at the table. We see here time and courage, and we see compassion. He goes to Levi's house. He reclines at the table with him. This is a symbol of fellowship. And this isn't just the two of them, but did you catch that in the text? There were many tax collectors. There were many sinners there. 
Jesus was hanging out with them. It was a Matthew party. Churches do this. We would call you to this as well. Maybe you want to gather your ones together, hashtag who's your one, and with uh, some of the folks in your small group and their ones, and maybe you put some Christians together with non-Christians, and you just, this is an agenda. You're not trying to sell people things. You're just trying to do life together with them and consult and light infect the world around you. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. Verse 16, when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with these people, they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because it's scandalous, right? It's actually revolting in the first century lens through the lens of the law. It's confusing. They didn't have categories for this kind of behavior. And Jesus said, well, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I came to help people who are sick. This is common sense. Jesus is saying, I don't view them as rejects. I view them as patience. Do you? Do you really? That's the mission. Jesus is saying, that's my purpose. That's what I've come to do. And I might suggest to you and suggest to me, it's our mission as well. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in a message that in a recent survey of evangelicals that 21% of us are regularly praying to win the lottery. And 20% of us, 1% less, are regularly praying for people who do not yet have a faith with Jesus. That's completely out of balance. Do we get it? I want to spend the rest of the time we have together, not a lot, but a little bit of time exploring. There's three main uh, characters in this story. Apart from Jesus, apart from the crowd, there's three main characters, and each one of them has a, a self-exploratory prayer that I would invite you and me to pray. You got the Pharisees, right? These scribes, these teachers of the law, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the friends, and you've got the sinners. Let's first look at the Pharisees. Here's the prayer. God. Could I be a Pharisee? I mean, that's an honest prayer to ask. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, this is a pretty important prayer to pray. Could I be a Pharisee? If the answer to that is even a hint of yes, am I judging people from a distance without engaging in pride? Am I getting within six feet? Am I breaking that barrier of space? Am I connecting with people? Am I going to them or do I stay back here? Well, I want to be set apart. I want to be holy. I don't want that to infect me. Could I be a Pharisee? If the answer to that is yes, then the prayer has to be, Lord, change me. I don't want to live like that. Jesus had such harsh things to say to the Pharisees. He viewed them as self-righteous. Why? Because they were. They liked to compare themselves favorably with others. They saw the faults and the, the, the problems and the shortcomings, inferiority in other people. They saw others as hopeless, as rejects, as people to be avoided. But Jesus is different. We see a reject. He sees a patient. We see somebody who deserves to be an outcast. Jesus sees somebody that he wants to draw to himself. We say, get away from me. Jesus says, hey, you, follow me. We see a tax collector who will never amount to much and who deserves to be thrown into jail or into hell. 
And Jesus sees somebody he wants to rescue and he wants to transform into a fully devoted follower of him. We see a tax collector using his pen to record his greedy earnings. Jesus sees a man who will use that pen to record the gospel of Matthew. Could I be a Pharisee? Yeah. Lord, change me. The friends. Here's the prayer. Could I be a friend? Could I be a friend? As I seek to invest and invite, when I look at the world around me, can I be a friend? Well, yes, yes, I'm willing. The prayer here then is, well, Lord, motivate me. Would you use me toward that end? I'm willing. There are sick people all around me. Jesus sees them as patients. Lord, use me for that eternal healing that you want to bring about in their lives. The passage right before the one that we just read is about, it's a story about a, a gorilla group of friends whose friend is sick. He's known as the paralytic. And these friends, there's a crowd surrounding Jesus. He's inside of a house. They climb up on the roof and cut a hole in the roof to lower their friend down through the crowd to Jesus. They're going to stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. We should live like that. Let's roll. We're doing this as a church. We're going after this. One life, we're unapologetically saying this is who we are. We can do no other. We're calling everybody who calls Venture Home to double down on this idea. Who's your friend? How do you invest and invite? So much so that we want to do some training. In the month of November... We're going to wrap this up in October. In the month of November, I think we're planning to offer at least five of this. these for the first run. We'll probably offer more later. But in the month of November, we're going to offer five trainings. We're going to take this whole 3D1 thing, and we're going to kind of drill it down uh, on the granular level with each of us. And we want you to come to one of those. So right now, pull out your smartphone. I'm going to invite you to do this. Pull out your smartphone and aim it at the QR code that's up on the screen. If you don't want to do that, go to the quick link that's up there, venturechristian.church slash training. The QR code will take you to the same link. You can see when these trainings are going to be offered. We're going to be offering child care. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. Go ahead and do it now so you don't feel annoyed when I tell you to do it next week as well. We want everybody who calls Venture their church home to come to one of these trainings because we want to raise you up. We want to train you up. We want our church to be a mobilized army of people who are bringing their friends to Jesus and will stop at nothing. Sure, we'll cut a hole in a roof if we have to to get our friends to Jesus. Have you ever been in a hospital during a code blue time? Code blue. Somebody's life is on the line. The doctors and the nurses rush in. Y'all, we are in a code blue time right now in our world, in our country. In Hamilton County, it's code blue time. We want to stop at nothing to get our friends to Jesus. People aren't looking for friendly churches. That's a misnomer. If we're just friendly enough, people will come to Jesus because they'll show up at our church and we'll smile at them and that's going to do something. I mean, that's important. People aren't just looking for friendly churches. Here's the deal. People are looking for friends. Are you that person? And do you love them enough to care about their eternity? 
One life, you have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're gonna invest in? I took a picture three weeks ago from right over here as we came up and we picked up those pitiful glow sticks. Did you stick yours in your pocket? I went on a hunting trip. By that night, mine in my pocket had stopped glowing and I carried it with me through that hunting trip. I was all over the mountains of Kentucky and I'd pull it out and be reminded, oh, this is pitiful. I want to do better. Similarly, if you want your light to shine before men and women so that they see your good works and praise your Father in heaven, the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to live like that, you have to nurture that light. Sign up for that training. Lean in to this opportunity. Are you looking for a sign? Here you go. God isn't asking you to figure it out. He's asking you to trust that he already has. He's going in front of you in this endeavor. Follow him. There's another sign on your way out of door number two. I snapped a picture of this last week. Who's your one? Who is it right now? God is calling you to double down on. Do you remember the fig tree? In that story earlier? Don't be the fig tree. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree before he talked about mountain moving faith? I think he was frustrated. It was not the season for figs, and I believe that Jesus created us. He created all of creation long before we came on the scene. He spoke the world into existence. And there's, no, there's not supposed to be a season for fig production. We're supposed to be continually producing. And I think in that moment of divine frustration, fully God, fully man, Jesus was just frustrated. This is not what I made you for. Do better. We have one life to invest. Who's the one life that we're investing in? There's three major characters in this story. We've looked at Pharisees, we've looked at friends, and we're going to wrap up with sinners. Here's the prayer. As we think about communion, it's coming up right next in our service. Start turning your mind and your attention toward communion. Could I be a sinner? The answer to that affirmatively is yes. Yes. I've been saved by God's grace, but I am a sinner here's my prayer. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. And he's faithful. When we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and restore us back into a right relationship with him. Maybe this morning you can identify the most with the sinners in these stories. Maybe you identify with that paralytic who needed his buddies to bring him to Jesus. Maybe you identify with the tax collector. Maybe you think, man, I, I'm not in this in crowd yet. I've got questions about Jesus. If I'm describing you, when the service is done, make a beeline over here under the cross. My friend Tony Johnson will be hanging out there. He would love to talk with you about this Jesus thing, what it's all about, what a life in Christ is all about. Would you take advantage of that opportunity? For all of us right now, we're going to respond in worship. But before we do that, let's take a moment. Could I be a sinner? Yeah. Lord, forgive me. You've got some elements in your seat that represent the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. I'm going to invite you right now to confess your sins because he's faithful to forgive. Then we're going to respond with worship. But before you take those elements, would you think about light? Would you think about that pitiful glow stick from three weeks ago? Would you think about what God is sparking in your heart right now? I hope he is. 
You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? If you don't have an answer to that question yet right now, pray and ask God to give you that, that name. Just whisper it in your ear. Who is that person? If you know who that is, before you take those elements of Jesus' body broken and blood shed into your body, would you simply pray for them? Pray a prayer of compassion. Pray for your one. And then confess your sins. And let God's forgiveness just wash all over you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity. If I'm a Pharisee, hmm, move me, motivate me. God, make me a friend of sinners. And God, am I a sinner? Yeah. Right now we pray prayers of forgiveness. You forgive us.